Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back. Last week on episode 123, I talked about how to teach the skill of protesting or saying no and why that's so important. Well, this week we are going to dig even deeper into this topic and I have a great guest for you. I interviewed Dr. Rachel Schwartz, who is a BCBA and has her PhD in special education. Rachel currently works at the Watson Institute, which she'll tell you about in a few minutes. And today Rachel and I are talking about body autonomy. She talks about what that is and why it's so important to teach. She also shares a ton of examples on how to work on this skill in early childhood all the way through high school. And we go real big picture with this. Why is this so important? And why is the skill of setting boundaries and teaching people to respect those boundaries so essential? We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We get into sexual education and consent and parent involvement. So there's a lot of ground covered. If you are any type of educator, this episode is a must lesson. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hi, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, how are you? I am great. I am, I'm looking forward to chatting with you, I have to say. Oh, me too. I'm very excited <laughs> about this. Um, so before we dive into our topic, do you want to share a little bit about your background and also a little bit about the Watson Institute where you now work? Sure, sure. So um, I'm Rachel Schwartz. I'm a behavior analyst and a special educator researcher and writer. My background is in teaching special education and in behavior consultation, working with individuals of all ages with intellectual and developmental disabilities. 
I have a PhD in special education, which allowed me basically just to delve into topics I really like, like self-determination and choice and sexuality education. So I really spend my time thinking about and working towards helping individuals with disabilities have a great quality of life and a life that they want and a life that they choose. I also focus a lot on parent education and training as well. Uh, the Watson Institute, that's where I work. Uh, they have, it was founded in 1917 and they started serving about 20 children at that time. And today there are over 1300 children that are served through programs and schools like psych services, respite care. Uh, Watson also partners with more than 70 area school districts to assist them in educating students with complex needs. They also have a training and consultation branch. That's what I'm a part of. And we provide supports on specialized topics, including diagnoses, our teacher organization, and planning, inclusion, uh, disability organizational supports, and behavioral supports, which is mainly what I do. Love that. And I, and I love the, the focus topics that you said you're really interested in, you know, self-determination and choice. Those are, those are something that's, I think, just not talked about enough. I know. They're not talked about enough. Or I think they, you know, I guess when Waymire 20 years ago or something, maybe, and I'm just throwing dates out, um, there were, there was a focus and we really started thinking about transition. And now I think we just use the words, but we don't mm-hmm. actually think about what they mean and how they apply to our practice. Yes. And that like, as a, as a younger teacher, and I don't mean like age-wise, like if you teach early childhood, when we think about all of the skills you need to be a successful adult. Sometimes when you teach preschool, early childhood, we're like, oh, well, they'll get to that later. But you really have to start building that foundation really early. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always think five years in advance. Where do they need to be? So today we're going to talk about body autonomy, which I am really excited to talk about because we haven't talked about that at all on this podcast. And I think it's and I and I'm it's a shame. It's something that's so important. So I think this is gonna be hopefully a great learning opportunity for everyone to make sure, you know, not only they know what body autonomy is, but how at you know the different stages of learning, how we can start working on this. So to kind of set the stage, you know, what what does body autonomy really mean? Well, when we talk about body autonomy or bodily autonomy, it's really just that you as an individual get to decide what happens to your body. So you have ownership over your body, you have control over it, you can make choices about it. It also means that you have the power to tell someone, no, I don't want you to touch my body. Someone needs to ask permission to touch your body. And it's just a a concept that we all take for granted, I think, in general, that people should just know this. Well, obviously, you should be able to control what happens to your body. But when we apply that into the world of disabilities and special education, it's something that that does need to be explicitly discussed and talked about. And how do we, especially with our younger kids, like when do we start talking about this? Can we do this in, in preschool and in early childhood? Oh, absolutely. All students need to learn that their body belongs to them. And that's any student, regardless of perceived ability and regardless of age. I mean, that could be something you're working on at the toddler stage, you know, an early intervention. You're trying to teach kids that they um, they can control their body and that you're going to respect that because that leads to the self-determination where you as an individual understand that you are the agent of change for yourself. So you can make decisions and advocate for your needs and wants. 
And it also sets the expectation for personal boundaries. We all have boundaries that we set for ourselves and how we like people to interact with us. And those boundaries should be respected. And too often for individuals with disabilities, we fail to empower them to set those boundaries or we um, impart our own boundaries on them and our values to them. So even in younger ages, early intervention, you know, we might start working uh, with kids on ways that they should you know, um, say hi to someone or how they should be, be interacting. Or, you know, I remember back in the day when I used to teach social skills and you talk about the distance. I'm not sure if you ever did this with like, mm-hmm. you know, here's a hula hoop, yes. <laughs> how far you should be away <laughs> with someone, or, you know, you, you'd be thinking about how to touch, how to, how to teach those kind of skills. Uh, but it really isn't a one size fits all approach. Uh, and I think we've all ideally reflected enough as professionals to kind of now be able to teach that same skill with a little bit more thought. But even at that age, you know, we're talking about how, when you're angry, how are you safe with your body? Or if you, um, if you want space or need space, how we can be, be communicating that and how it's appropriate that other people around you respect that. So even at that early intervention stage, and then definitely, definitely as we're getting into elementary school and beyond, it's really important to set the stage for that kind of advocacy and setting of personal boundaries with others. Do you see it like this as a need of a mindset shift with some educators on on respecting those boundaries? Because sometimes, you know, there's this power dynamic that is just not right. And, you know, I'm the teacher or I'm the educator. You do what I say. And I, you know, I'm going to take your hand and pull you over to the chair if, if you're not going to come. And that's really not mm-hmm. respecting personal boundaries, like you've said. Yes, absolutely. I think there is so much... Um, kind of reckoning to do in that way, because there is a lot of, I don't want to call it old school, because I don't mean it in a, in a bad way, but there's this, this whole idea that, as you said, you're the, I'm the teacher, you're the student. So because I say it, you do it. And that doesn't actually teach kids self-advocacy. And it definitely doesn't teach them um, that other people should listen to their words or other people should listen to some of the decisions they're trying to make. And I think in special education in particular, people get very comfortable, as you said, kind of saying, hey, we're going this way. And sort of just grabbing a kid's hand and saying, hey, let's go deliver mail. You're just going to come with me. Let's go. Mm -hmm. And what message does that send? It sends to the student, um, I I get to kind of touch you whenever I want. um, And I get to tell you where you get, where you go. And even if you were to pull away from me, you know, what would happen if the kid pulled away? Would you just grab their hair and again and say, oh, no, I said we're going to go get the mail. You know, what are what are they communicating to you with their actions? And uh, I also think that can be really, really problematic uh, for multiple reasons. But think about on the reverse end, we get very upset then if students reach out and touch your hand. So if you're teaching yeah. and you and a student reaches out and touches your hand, suddenly it's, it's hey, you don't touch me. Uh, you need to give me space. This is inappropriate. And yet, you as the educator reaching over and grabbing them. So what message are you sending? It's making it very unclear for our students what uh, what they should be doing and how they should be interacting. Uh, and not to mention that also ties a lot into safety because individuals with disabilities are victimized at an extremely high rate in our country. Uh, I think that the statistic from, I think it was 2015, was that uh, individuals with cognitive disabilities will be victims of an assault at least 10 times in their lifetime. Wow. It's something really high and that I think other 
individuals with disabilities are victims of sexual assault at around three times the rate of those without disabilities. So that's just from a safety perspective, there are real safety concerns at play about understanding sort of who can touch you and how to advocate for yourself. Because if we're just teaching kids from elementary school on, adults kind of can grab your body whenever they want um, and you don't have a say, that's, that's teaching the wrong message. We wanna be showing them that your body is, you're in control of your body and that adults can ask you to do something, but that they have to listen and to respect what you're, what you're telling us, whether verbally, vocal verbally, or are um, other ways that you're using your, your communication. Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like, I hope people are having a lot of light bulb moments listening to that because that is, that is all huge. And I think it is a necessary shift in a lot of our practice as educators on even something as simple. That's a great example. Like let's go get the mail. It's seemingly innocent and no educator is like, Hey, I'm going to teach this child to comply with any demand ever for the rest of their lives. But in doing so, we're kind of laying that foundation for those lack of boundaries, like you said, and that there's no respect for your space and your body. And it it's not the intention of our actions necessarily, but you can see how over time that starts to build up. Oh, I mean, I remember seeing a 15-year-old go over and um, he went over to a teacher and he tried to kind of give her a hug. And she said, you know, oh, don't, don't, you know, you can't touch me. I need you to give me a space. That's not appropriate. Don't give me space. But then I think it was even a couple hours later, I saw another adult come over and just wrap her arms around him, you know, giving him a side hug. It was a different adult. But I just, that really struck me. That mixed messaging really struck me. And it's something that we, you know, we don't talk about. And I think it really goes back to permission and consent in learning. You know, we talk about consent in so many different ways uh, in education and in, and in our society, but I don't think we talk about permission and learning and permission in special education particularly and how we as practitioners can and should be reinforcing permission in the way that we teach and the way that we respond to learners um, because it is a process of, of ongoing consent where if you're trying to teach a skill uh, you know, we even think about some of the vulnerable situations we put our students in. Um, but if you're doing teaching a skill and you're using a prompting system that may involve a physical prompt, let's say, you know, how many teachers are really looking and waiting for signs of distress? For does mm-hmm. this student want my my hand on their hand when I'm trying to model, you know, teach this skill? Um, if a hand, if a student pulls their hand away, that's probably a signal to you that you actually they they're not giving you consent to teach them in that way. And so what are you going to do about that? And how are we going to listen? And how can we, as a, as a community of teachers and a community of practitioners, really respect that and have a broader conversation about how this might apply to our practices, like our, our ongoing evidence-based practices that we have? Because prompting is one of them, and it's, it's a very uh, successful strategy to use. So how do we tie this in? At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Yeah, that's that's a great example with, you know, that something as simple as a physical prompt. I I give this example a lot in big trainings, you know, in, in yoga classes. And I I'm someone I, during a yoga class when I'm sweaty, I do not want the yoga teacher to give me any physical prompt. Like I no, would die worst. inside a little it's bit, the right? Worst. You're just saying I, get get yes, away from my yeah, get away do, from me. Do not touch me. And there was one instructor I had, this was obviously many moons ago, pre-COVID, and we can go into a studio. And while everyone was kind of had their heads down in the start of the class, she would say, raise your hand if you'd prefer to not have physical prompts during class. And I was like, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, I'm raising my hand. I do not (laughs) want my body touched when I'm sweaty. And it was something so simple that made me feel more comfortable for the next 60 minutes of that class. And I've thought back to that example so often, like how can we be doing something like that in our classrooms? Right. Well, I think you just said it about having a discussion and a rule, you know, like what Mm -hmm. is, what are as a teacher or as a practitioner, whatever it is that, that whoever's a listener, like whatever they're doing, how are you setting uh, rules in your space for that? About touching, about giving space, about responding to people's um, indications for space. How are we bringing that up? Um, because I do think there's an organization I work with, Elevatus, and uh, they're a sexuality education organization. They're wonderful. Uh, and at the start of every class, they do an activity where the participants decide where they want their name tags to go. So they give them a name tag and they say, you get to decide uh, if the name tag goes on the right side of your chest or the left side of your chest because your body is your own. So each of us are in charge of what happens to our bodies. And everyone has to repeat that. You know, you say, because my body's my own, you know, and it can be mm-hmm. a big, big thing. And that practices two skills, which is speaking up for yourself uh, and making a choice. And also the, that concept of body autonomy. Teachers could easily incorporate those kind of activities within morning meetings, within within their group instruction or even individual instruction. Um, something like that, that can incorporate this idea of as a class, we're talking about this and we're recognizing the importance of your space and we're going to start developing rules around it. Maybe it is um, rules around language around, okay, if you don't like this, you can say, um, I, you know, I, I don't like the way you're in my space or I need you to give me more space. There's cards you can use, you know, there's PEX cards that you can use for this. There's a lot of different ways that that can be communicated. Sometimes kids communicate by, you know, smacking your hand away. And that's, that's fine. Cause that's them teaching and mm-hmm. telling you what they want. But I do think there are ways that we can be creative about and more, more thoughtful about incorporating this into the classroom. Yeah, I love these examples about that don't even involve language because I can, you know, anticipate questions like, okay, you know, yes, there's, you can easily see kids that have more verbal skills like, hey, is it okay if, you know, I, I touch your hand and show you how to tie your shoes now when we're doing it and a kid can answer yes or no, but what about our kids that that don't have those verbal skills yet? You know, I love your example that you mentioned a few minutes ago about kind of watching and waiting and seeing their response and reaction. That's, that's such a simple thing that we could add into everything we do. And every kid, you know, we can teach every kid how to communicate now, whether vocally, whether through cards, somehow you can teach them how they can respond no to something because that's really important. And, you know, when we, you know, you work in challenging behavior as well. And, you know, one of the things is often it's, it's, we're always shaping skills. We're always saying, okay, it's not that this, this, as you said, intent or this communication is bad. It's just this behavior, this behavior in this context, or maybe this behavior is dangerous for others. So we have to try to, to teach a new behavior, you know, in order to reach that, that same outcome. 
And so teaching someone to use a car, teaching someone to um, even physically step away or to put their hand out. And those are skills that we, we teach so many skills every day. It's easy to incorporate a new one for something as important as communicating no. And I mean, I know people teaching yes and no by, um, you know, teaching no by teaching yes, you know, teaching out of context, mm-hmm. teaching yes first, do preference assessment, start asking, do you want this? If they reach for it, model yes. That could be verbally or whatever way they communicate. You work with them on yes. And then you start discriminating between yes and no. You know, so mm-hmm. they don't like this. Do you want an M&M or a paperclip? No, you know, you know, you mm-hmm. start saying, um, allowing them to discriminate between the two of those. And that's a way to start teaching no in sort of a more uh, out of context in that discrete trial type of setting. And then starting to generalize that. I think actually though, the biggest impact that, teachers can have in this is by modeling it, by modeling, saying no, communicating verbally and non-verbally when someone's in your space or touching you in a way that you don't like. Mm-hmm. By teaching that student, by modeling that, uh, sorry, by modeling that for the student, you are helping you are helping them see and helping to prepare them uh, to have control of their bodies and to, uh, to communicate to communicate that both verbally and in other, other physical indicators. Because that's how we work in society. You know, you don't want something, you scoot away from it. If yeah. you, you know, there's a lot of nonverbal cues that we work on to, to show that we, um, we don't want someone in our area. And I, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can teach students and we should explicitly be teaching them a way to communicate that. Like I said, whether it's no or another type of phrase or indicator you can use, but that should be something that's explicitly taught. Yes. And Okay, so I keep thinking as we've kind of been talking about this last last few minutes, like how this looks in the classroom and what is your advice for for staff training on this topic? Because, you know, I, I talk a ton about staff training and how important that is. And I can see, you know, teachers getting on board with this or, you know, oh, some educators like, yes, this is great. We have to do this. How do we get the rest of our team on board when it maybe does require a mindset shift on, you know, this is different than the way we've been doing things? Right. And it is. And and I will tell you, a lot of um, professionals and parents can get uncomfortable talking about this, both because it might be, it, it's a lot to constantly reflect on your, on, on your practice and think about, okay, well then how do I involve this new, as you said, mindset shift into my work? And, um, and I think it can also be really hard for parents because all of this really ties into future sexuality education. And a lot of people just don't want to touch that or feel really uncomfortable touch, talking about that. And um, I think that in terms of a staff training, at this, I think a lot of people understand the need for all, all people to have control over their bodies and to be able to think about it. So as you said, everyone can get on board with that. If you want to get down to how do we teach this and how do we bring this into the classroom, um, first and foremost, teach it teach it by teaching kids their bodies, names for their body parts. So real names for your body parts. You can teach in isolation with cards and then in practice with songs. You can use naturalistic opportunities if you have them with students, toileting, dressing, anything like that. Um, and just give them real terms for their body parts. So uh, they have, they are able to then articulate if something hurts. And obviously if something ever happens, they're able to talk about it to an adult and they'll have the language to do so. So first step for most practitioners is just to start teaching body parts to your students, see what they know and whatever they don't know, teach it to them and use the medical terms. I don't know if we need to say that, but um, do use medical (laughs) terminology because, you know, nobody, nobody understands. I I had a student once and 
the mother kept using something to, I can't even remember it. It was something really ridiculous, like, like, like you're cozy or something. I don't know. Some, something that I would never, you know, sorry, this yeah. is, I don't know. I don't know how PG-13 no, go there. Go there. Yeah. yeah. But I, I remember being like, what is she talking about? And yeah. it was, it was her word for vagina. And I was yeah. like, we have to teach this, this girl. Cause she was in her, um, you know, she was 16 years old. We've got to teach her this word. Like, this is not, there's no shame. This is not yeah. shameful. This is just medical. Let's just teach yeah. it to her so she knows. Because I guarantee you someday when she's out and she says, um, I need to go to the bathroom or, or something, or if she's at the doctor, something itches. I mean, no one's going to know what she's talking about. Yeah. So, and that's the problem with those words. You know, I think pe- the made up words that sound cutesy or nicer it's okay. Well, what about when they're, you know, when maybe when they're three, four, five, you, you can understand a little bit more why a parent want to teach that. But then what about when they're 15 and people don't understand them? No one knows what those words mean because you made them up. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, language is power. Knowing mm-hmm. the language, knowing the parts of your body gives students powers and it's empowering to them. So we have to do that. Um, so, so that's kind of number one. And then also you want to talk about safety in the bodies at the same time. And so that's how there are different parts of your body. So there are parts of your body that everyone sees, like your hair and your arms, your legs, your hands, and those are public because everyone sees them. They're open to everybody. But there are also parts of your body that only you see and only you touch. And those are covered by your shirts or your underwear. And they're special to you. And you can decide as an individual who touches them. So that kind of language helps to reiterate the importance of you as an individual having ownership and control over your body. And it also is a helpful language for teachers because it gives them tangible steps to start kind of coming and and attacking this concept of of bodily autonomy. Um, And then add on to this, the teaching of no that we talked about. So we've taught them their body parts. We've taught them a little bit about safety in their bodies. And we've taught, we're teaching them no, how to communicate no and yes. We're modeling that for them. And, um, and then I think one of the, the things that we can really do is just continue to, to think about the social goals. So every kid typically has some kind of social communication goals or social emotional goals. And so really as a teacher, being critical of the goals that you're teaching. So teaching kids to go up to every person and shake their hands and say, what's your name? Um, you know, that might not be the best idea, especially nowadays. <laughs> but um, in general, you know, that we don't actually do that as people. And I, yeah. I'm going to tell you, I, my, <laughs> I used to do that. I ran a social skills group for a long time. And I remember, you know, my first couple of years, that's what I did. When you go up to someone, you go up and you shake your hand and this is how you meet people. And you don't actually, you know, yeah. like, <laughs> I mean, that's not actually true. And I've learned enough, you know, again, over time, you just learn, you're like, well, that that's actually untrue. So, um, so when we're teaching these goals, look at those goals critically. If a kid doesn't want to shake hands and honestly, who needs to shake hands? Will they do a high five? If they, if they don't want to do that, can they just say, hi, my name's Jake. And that's fine. They don't need to, to have any sort of physical touch. There's yeah. a lot of socially acceptable ways to greet people and to show affection that doesn't need to involve physical touch. That's such an important point. And I, you know, I, the story where you're like, oh, I used to teach shaking hands. I had the same situation happen a few years ago. I went in for a consult in the high school and they were working on greeting in the hallway and it was a 17 year old boy and they were having him, te- having him wave to people in the hallway saying, hi, hi. And I was like, okay. And I took the whole team. I'm like, during passing period, we're all going to just go and watch in the hallway. 
and it's going to be smelly and it's going to be crowded because high school boys are smelly, but we're going to watch how boys greet each other and none of them wave. <laughs> like, no, I know, you never 17, see boys yes. being like, oh, hey, hi, how I know. are you? I'm like, what do they do? They, they make eye contact. They do a little nod. They sometimes do a fist bump. That's it, <laughs> you know. Well, so yeah, well, I'll, you know that um, I'm going down a rabbit hole. I I, <laughs> I worked with adults for a long time, and I um, and and I was really you know we did a really no nonsense adult. Like, what does it mean to be an adult? We're gonna talk about it and everything. And I remember two stories. One was, um, um, working on the same idea of like what happens if you kind of like somebody. So this was a sex ed class I was teaching and it's like, okay, my first sex ed class, it's like, okay, if you really like someone, how you, how you kind of flirt with them? What do you do when you're at a bar? And I remember we talked about, um, getting someone's number and we all, I took this class out to a bar. We all went (laughs) to a bar together. And I just remember everyone showed up with notepads and pens and went, and I, I just saw them and I kind of came in and I was watching. I was like, what are they doing? They're going to different people, just asking for their numbers. I mean, talk about not discriminating, (laughs) teaching all of those different social pieces. I had to pull them all back and be like, no, 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 no. Oh wait, I forgot to teach all of these other skills. Every single skill. Um, or, you know, another one, and this is way back in the day. And I feel like a lot of maybe female teachers go through this is when you're teaching toileting skills with men and you sort of teach the skill of a lot of men, like sitting on the toilet, you're working on that, but you don't, cause I, I'm a female and I don't go into male restrooms in public. I actually don't, didn't have insights into like, what's the rules around being in a male restroom. And I remember, yeah. um, working with another male teacher at some point and he was like, Johnny, this, this man, I'm just calling him Johnny. I was teaching. He was like, Johnny goes in the bathroom and he just drops everything down to the ground. <laughs> he goes <laughs> to the urinal. And I didn't realize at the time that, you know, there are just rules for that. There are things yeah, you don't know. They're social norms. Yeah. And um, really going down a rabbit hole here. But all of this is to say is that, you know, be critical about the social skills that you're teaching and reach out if you don't know, you know, reach out to other people if you need help. But you should always, there's a lot of, um, we, we, we teach a lot of these, like, here's the way, like the socially acceptable way we have to greet people and to show affection. We don't often really explicitly continue to teach those skills and kind of teach the nuances of those skills and like who you should hug versus who you should take, shake hands with versus who you do high fives with and all those other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really goes into context. I mean, when you're trying to, you just describe this in the hallway, like the context of when these skills come into play, uh, you know, when I, when I think about tying this idea of bodily autonomy and sexual education together, you know, um, it's all about context. You know, a doctor giving you an exam in the office is appropriate, but a doctor giving you an exam or saying, hey, I need to give you an exam in my car, that's yeah. not, you know, so how are we teaching that and thinking about that? And that's really continuing to build on those basic skills of bodily autonomy throughout schooling. So through elementary school, and you're continuing to work on those nuances and then um, obviously adding on to sexual education as you go. Yeah. You know, you had mentioned a little bit ago, you know, how sometimes practitioners and parents can be uncomfortable talking about this because especially at younger ages, you're like, oh my gosh, they'll never be 15 or 20 or want a date, you know, <laughs> yeah. but you know, how do you approach this conversation with parents, um, on, on teaching these skills? Cause I could see some parents being like, you know, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want my child to, to learn the word penis and we don't call it that at home. And, and how do we start those conversations 
with, you know, parents and caregivers about, about why this is important? Um, well, I huge question. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I feel like it's, it's always hit or miss to be honest with you. I mean, parents are the number one educators for kids. And I think it's really hard because, um, because we really do need them to be on board. So we need them to be partners in this kind of discussion uh, across the board with body autonomy. And again, because if you're saying to them, we're trying to teach Johnny, um, you know, that he doesn't have to hug people. That means that you don't force him to hug grandma if he doesn't want to. You know, that mm-hmm. you're trying to to establish between the home and the school uh, a true united front in terms of teaching these skills. Uh, but what I really tell parents is that um, kids, your, your child's going to grow up. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It doesn't matter that the severity of need or the diagnosis, all kids have hormones, all kids grow up. And as their bodies change, it can be very confusing and it can be very, very scary. And when kids have questions and they go to you and they're asking what's going on or um, what, you know, what's happening, or I saw this on a TV show, um, the gut reaction can be, oh, don't worry about it, or I don't want to talk about that, or you don't need to worry about that. Um, that actually creates a lot of feeling of shame. And mm-hmm. shame stops a person from asking a trusted adult for information. So if parents want to help their child be safe, and if they want to help their child understand um be empowered and gain that self-advocacy and gain that kind of self-determination and knowledge over their bodies and, and, and safety, then they need to be a safe person they can talk to. They need to keep those open lines of communication because uh, teachers are a great resource for this and they can, and they can share this information and they can teach it. You know, often most states, uh, you know, you need parent permission to do that. And so they do need to have parents on board uh, but ultimately, you want the parent to be the person that is is the trusted adult, because mm-hmm. I, you know, teaching a class, as I said, um, so many of, in fact, I think every adult I've ever taught has uh, gone to the internet or TV to look for answers because they hadn't gotten they hadn't gotten those answers before from anyone. So yeah. I remember teaching a class, and you know, one of the entry sort of questions just to get a sense of where people are would be, uh, do you know where babies come from? And no one could tell me. So one person said, uh, you know, when two people love each other, they, they have a really big hug and that's how a baby happens. And, um, and it seems kind of like funny, but it's really actually very sad because these yeah. are adults who were never given information and they were very, very desperate for it. And one adult in that class who had been in um, put in an institution when she was five and was in her 60s at the time said it would uh, it would be really nice to be treated like a grown-up. And I wow. thought that was really powerful. And I kind of trickle this all down to um, for parents in that, uh, you know, you want the best for your kid, the best outcomes, and that comes with information. And mm-hmm. there are ways to teach this information to any any individual. Now, some of the nuances are going to be harder. Some of the, the, the concepts um, the, you know, pronouns and some of those can be more difficult for certain kids, but there are still ways to teach all elements of sexuality education to help them uh, be safe and to help them have that uh, ownership over their bodies. The American Publishing House for the Blind, I believe they have like a 3D kit. You can buy PECs for a long time, had um, PECs cards ex- uh, specifically for sex ed. So there are a lot of resources. Elevatus, like I said, they, they run a curriculum. So um, 
so all of this, I know we're getting off track on sexuality education. No, it's, but, it's really but, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about this all day. Um, but, but for parents, it's just, we have to be able to give them information. And, you know, for, for autism, Jason Travers has a lovely workbook for uh, people with autism and for teachers that is breaking down sexuality education. And it really talks about um, just some, some ideas for teachers of how to teach this. And, uh, and I, I also think he problem solves, you know, if there are some, some interfering behaviors like, uh, you know, inappropriate masturbation in the classroom or something like that, he breaks it down. But uh, I think what's really important also for parents that I tell them is that sexuality education is not about pleasure. You know, it's a part of it, but that's a really small piece. It's yeah. actually about social skills and relationships and self-advocacy and personal skills, hygiene. It's all of these other components that help you have a fulfilling life. And, um, you know, I've, I've taught sexual ed- education before. And by the end of it, I feel like I was basically running a dating site because it was really interesting. You know, but I feel like I ended up becoming like a matchmaker for, yeah. for everyone. Maybe in another life, you know? In another life. <laughs> no, I love the connection you're making between all these points because that is like how the conversation with a parent should go or with an administrator should go to see why this piece fits into this big picture goal that we all have and we all agree on. Yeah. And, and, you know, everyone's scared. There's a lot of, uh, every state also has different consent procedures. So in terms of, uh, you know, parents obviously consenting, there are just rules about what schools can teach. So sometimes this is not available in a school and a teacher might say, I really want to teach this information. We don't actually have a health class. So what do I do? And, um, I've, you know, collaborated with pediatricians in the area. We've collaborated with different people to try to make sure this information is offered somewhere. So if you personally can't give it, where can they go to get it? And, um, I, I do think special education, if you were to present to parents, these are the things we're working on and why and get permissions, you know, written permission to do that. I think most parents would, would give it to you particularly, sorry, tricky word (laughs) (laughs) when we're talking about, um, some of the basics, like the body autonomy, the body parts, we're talking about hygiene and personal relationships and some of those boundaries. I think a lot of parents are on board for that. Um, I've definitely worked with parents who just are completely terrified of talking about sex with their kids. Yeah. But you can see how like those topics that you just mentioned, you know, really relate to what we're already doing in school. You know, the whole idea of setting boundaries and being a self-advocate and problem solving. That's all like in our school curriculum already, but it's also going to set the stage for these bigger skills later in life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just a richer life. I mean, yeah, everyone needs to have relationships and, you know, I'm not sure how many people saw the Netflix show, but I, I definitely think that helped to get a lot of parents that I've spoken with and practitioners thinking about dating skills and relationships and how do you teach it? Um, I forget what the Netflix show is called. I'm not sure if you saw I, it. I, I, I know, know I was just thinking about it, as you said. Yeah, it's called, I think it's called Dating on the Autism Spectrum. Yes, it called, yes. Something, something like that. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. And I, um, and I loved it because it was what a good platform for this issue because people have been talking about this for a long time that we really need to be teaching this because uh, everyone deserves the, the access to information and a lot of people are just scared to do it. And I think that humanized it to show, okay, well, do you want Michael? to be able to have a relationship. You do. So let's help get him those skills that he can. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, Rachel, thank you so much. I feel like we covered so much. This I know, is great. sorry. I mean, no, we're, we're I, all I, in a place here. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love it because you see how it all fits together. And that's what I think is really important because sometimes it's hard to connect these big, huge topics when you do teach younger grades. Like, oh, well, that's not my problem to teach right now. But we can see that kind of, it's like a little skill sequence that we have to start at early to get there. And I think in the younger grades, one of the most important things besides the modeling and the teaching of the body parts is to give privacy, close the door, you know, close the door to the bathroom, hang up a shower curtain that divides you and the individual, you know, turn away, ask if they're ready before you touch them. Cause so many little kids, you know, we're still helping to toilet them. Um, before you touch them, warn them, I'm getting a wipe. I'm going to wipe. Show them where, you know, that you're, you're moving closer to them. And if they move away from you, acknowledge it stop, move away, ask again. You know, sometimes we're not able to just say, well, we're going to let you wander around with, you know, poop on you. We're not going to do that, but, um, we can give them time and space to respond and to allow for them to see what we're about to do. You know, and I've, um, I mean, I've definitely worked with kids who have had, you know, pulled out trachs or feeding tubes. And for medical reasons, there's not an option to say, Hey, you know, we just got to get this back in. But, um, but I do think that sometimes as practitioners, we are not good at asking for that permission and acknowledging when the permission hasn't been given uh, in those kind of situations. And I think yeah. we can start using this idea of privacy and using some of those routines as a great place to demonstrate that idea of, of waiting for consent and waiting for, uh, for and letting the uh, individual give us the permission or acknowledge that we're, you know, that we're coming towards them and this is what's happening. And it's just a like more respectful way to engage with like any human ever, you know, it like is, it's just, it is. if you could just get that in your repertoire, it would just, it's going to change the dynamic. And I think the relationships that educators and their kids or clients have. Yep. And, and in errorless learning too, it's thinking about this idea is going to and should shift the way that a lot of practitioners start applying some of those strategies or some of those tactics. But there's a way to continue to use them. Just think a little bit more about, is this person responding and how are they responding? And I think if you give and allow for a little bit more of that space, the amount of respect that you are demonstrating and the skill that you are empowering that learner to have, which is that they have the right to kind of determine how they learn and how someone interacts with them is so much more important then, you know, you being able to do that, that prompt exactly when you wanted to. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So you mentioned a few resources that, um, if people want to learn more, can you, can you list those again and possibly email those to me so I can throw them in the show notes? Sure. Absolutely. Um, yes. So Terry Cohenhoven, and I hope I'm saying that way. I I always forget how to say it. Um, she has a great book teaching children with Down syndrome about their bodies, boundaries, and sexuality. It's really great. It's, um, she has one for boys and girls about growing up as well. Um, Anything by Dave Hinsberger, and I'll send this all to you. Uh, right. He he has one. I think it's called Eye Openers. Parents ask questions about sexuality and children with developmental disabilities. He is wonderful, um, and I also believe he has a a wonderful video series to teach masturbation because a lot of individuals don't learn how to do it, and then they can yeah. become unsafe. So he has a wonderful series. And Elevate Us, I'll send that to you, is a great resource because they have curriculum for teaching. They have for high school and adults. And I know they're working on a bunch of other resources as well. And all of those can really help professionals and parents start to pull together a a comprehensive curriculum where you start with bodily autonomy, you can start with all those pieces, but then you're ready to kind of move on to other pieces of sexuality education 
Now, of course, that's teaching older kids, but even in elementary school, like a lot of those concepts you can start working on hygiene and um, hygiene, body parts, all of those pieces. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate you taking your time and and sharing all of your expertise in this area. I think it's going to be so helpful for everyone. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It was wonderful. Like I said, talk about this all day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Rachel. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.